Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 482 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Stefan Senior and Corinne Wilson of Fruity Systems and ask them about how they created Space Salvage, a VR space-bound game concerning the trials and tribulations of a salvage pilot and operator in a far-flung dystopian future. Yes, things are not great in the future, apparently, even in space. In fact, especially in space. Space Salvage is a game that celebrates adversity. It celebrates clunkiness. It has a terrible interface, deliberately. It celebrates just nonsense that we face every day. And it's a massive satirical take on things as well. And we delve deep into this during this great episode of The Sausage Factory. It's one of my favourite... VR games in recent years. I first saw it at EGX two or three years ago now. I was completely drawn into the nonsense that was going on before my eyes. So, without further ado, let's just listen to me chat to Stefan and Corin about the creation of Space Salvage. Chris, take it away. Hello, Stefan and Corin. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Good. Could you tell us who you are and what you do? Thank you. Um, I am Stefan Senior. I am the lead artist at Fruity Systems. We make virtual reality games. I'm Corin Wilson. I'm the lead programmer at Fruity Systems. Right. Okay. We're going to flow like that between you, Stefan and Corin. That's yep. between you. Although some of these questions might go, ooh, or that's a combined effort. So mm, yeah. let's see yeah. how this goes. How did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? I have always been a massive fan of games. Um, I did a bunch of other stuff in my youth that was not game development and then decided that was not for me. Ended up studying game development, taught 3D asset creation for a while, and then after doing some kind of working in some other places, ended up at Fruit Systems. But yeah, basically a, a love for art generation and games, really. And you taught stuff. You actually on that side of things. Yeah, I lectured for two years at the university that I graduated from on how to make 3D assets specifically using like modern pipelines because they kind of needed somebody who had that had that knowledge base at the time. Luckily, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> 
great, uh, very easy opportunity straight out of university. Did that make you a better at that particular skill? Do you think by doing that? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I like teaching quite a lot. I I kind of um, always had sort of team leadery kind of roles and things that I do. So it's something that I I had a lot of enjoyment for. And yeah, it definitely forces you. I mean, the amount of questions I got asked that I didn't know the answer to is a <laughs> is a long list. So it's a lot of learning on the job, for sure. But yeah, it was really good. And what about you, Corin? Um, I've played games since I was very little, and both my parents play games too. So it's just been I've always loved taking stuff to pieces. So as a hobby, I started making games, and then I realized making games is very hard. So I could make stuff, but making good stuff was fine. Went into game design, and straight out of university game design, I ended up at Free Systems. Right. What, yeah. what university college course did you go to? I went to game design at York St. John. Right. And I also did a computer science degree as well. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Because I need to do both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nice. Next question. What do you believe are your biggest influences? For me, it's definitely like like all of my stuff consistently has a... I really love storytelling. That's like... So why I got attracted to 3D asset creation in the first place is because you can tell a lot of story with a 3D asset. Like the best character designs in video games have like tell so much without speaking to them at all. You can just read so much from their character design, you can read so much from world design, all of this stuff. So I think for me, it was probably um, like fiction books. Uh, I read a lot of fiction books as a child. I still do. I think like the the wealth of really interesting creative ideas and like I'm reading tons of 60s science fiction at the moment and the amount of really out there wacky concepts that you can fit into a 80 page pulp sci-fi novel <laughs> is kind of unparalleled as far as I've discovered so yeah that's kind of my impetus for all of it I think 60s and 70s sci-fi both in text and film form just have a look. You'll never, you'll never be the same again. <laughs> that's some, that's some, some great stuff. <laughs> yeah. Still one of my favourite films, although not my favourite, but sort of disturbing is Silent Running. If you don't know that one, um, strong, strongly recommend Silent Running. It, it leaves you at the end of it feeling very depressed. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just like... Great creative experience. Yeah. It's a shocking one. But anyway, really, really good film. Corin, how yeah. about yourself? What's the thing that drives, what inspires you? Maybe the What's the thing you keep orbiting, whether you like it or not? Um, it's probably D&D or the tabletop playing games and rule sets and stuff, the, the, the huge amount that there are. Um, it's definitely where it started. You can you get given a bunch of rules, you make some fun things happen, and you get a lot of freedom to take them away, put them back in, rule the cool, all that stuff. And I, I'm, I'm addicted to it. I can't stop making these games and messing with the formulas. Uh, it's all I to do really I can definitely relate to that regular yeah. listeners will know I play a lot of tabletop RPGs so yes and I can see that in Space Salvage streams of all sorts of kind of the DMs on the screen going what do you like to do now I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> giving you this universe what would you like to do, do with yeah. it well no, not that. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you can run face versions of that if you want to. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, next question. Some wonderful answers, everyone. Good stuff. But next question. And this one's also a little bit difficult, um, but it's important to know. To know what you think of your peers. What video game developer do you admire most and why? Mm. 
yeah, like wholesale of all the games I've played, I, I have no idea. There's so many like top shelf devs, obviously. But there is a there's a group of developers called Sockpop, and I think they make a game every month. They're all available on Steam. They're like three pounds, and they are very creative and really interesting. And that is like that's like peak game development for me, <laughs> where they're churning out like really cool ideas. They're all very mechanically focused. You know, they're really great, like little packaged games. They don't extend to, they don't reach too far. They know what they are. And like, that's, yeah. That, like, if you want to, if you're trying to get into indie development, like their level of game development is definitely a good benchmark, for sure. Corin, could you point out and go, you there, carry on doing what you're doing? That's a really hard question to answer. Like, Telltale Games, I was like, an instinctually come up. I don't really know why, though. The uh, Paradox, I love their games a lot, and I'm, I'm always very excited. Uh, yeah, very excited whenever they come up with something new or they're trying a new medium. I know they're making, like, a, I don't know, I think there's a Sims game coming out soon or something they're going to be making. I'm really excited to see their spin and how they pull that off on that. 4X Sims. 4X Sims, yeah. Uh, big, unwieldy games made by AB Studios. So that's like the inspiration I go to. And then whatever games has come up. Okay. No, that's good answers. Yeah. Paradox. Yeah, I, yeah. They owe me a lot of hours to say. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of hours. Yeah. The amount of times I've found myself putting myself in a cold sack in one of their games, like, oh, wait, I can't progress because I did that thing about 40 hours ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah. Last question of the first half. Here we go. What are you playing right now? Uh, it's not. It's not a list I'm particularly proud of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Battlefield 2042 at the moment, but I am like a FPS sweat lord. I, I have been since my teens, and uh, yeah, it's never. It's never really. It's not a great game. I wouldn't necessarily yeah. recommend you put time into it if you're a fan of FPSs, but it's uh, yeah, it's the only thing on the market at the moment. And for complete contrast, a game called Inkbound, which is made by the developers of Monster Train, which is one of my favorite hard-based roguelites, possibly like one of a very few number of those games. But Monster Train is a amazing like masterclass in roguelite design. And Inkbound is their newest iteration, and they've got like a really cool, unique combat system that I have not really seen in other games. And they seem to be, yeah, mm-hmm. rife with like amazing ideas, which for us as game developers is great to steal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I play these games. Corin, what are you distracting yeah. yourself with these days? Absolutely no surprise to anyone. Baldur's Gate 3 is taking up a huge amount of my life, it is consuming, all consuming Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> I think I have six separate runs on at the moment, and I just thought, ooh, I'll try this next time. <laughs> Stuck into. Uh, I've recently taken a break from Stellaris. I'm Stellaris in recovery, and I'm on Crusader Kings 3 as well. That's a long-standing fan of the series. Now, yeah. that's the end of the first half. You made it. Well done. Let's uh, let's go into the second half of the show now, where we will be uh, flying high, pooting along in space with Space Salvage. Thank you. 
So the first question, is it really a question? It's a request. Really delve deep into space salvage until we know what it is. So in your own words, Stefan and Corinne, what is it? Space salvage is a exploratory space flight adventure game in yeah. which you are a space bin man, which really works as a loose functional premise to create a bunch of like interesting VR interactivity from the seat in your spacecraft, basically, as you fly around a bunch of different environments and do a bunch of stuff. It's it's uh, dystopian and slightly humorous and very British. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think that's it. That's I mean, you are... Sitting in a pod, it's a VR game. Everyone, so it's on. We'll talk about platforms. It's on later, but it's on. It's a it's a VR title. It's very much. I may. I usually stand when I'm playing VR. So, but I sat down with this one. Nice. Really did because I thought you're in a pod. You're sitting down. I'm going to sit, and it really it's a much better experience sitting down with this game. It almost feels right that you should be, and it's if it's been designed that way, then it, it works very well and. Your interaction with the space is you you and the controllers, which are presented to you as analog things that you interact mm-hmm. with. We'll talk about that later, but that's mm-hmm. what the listener needs to know. That's And your main view is three panels of rather large sort of glass. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking around and looking out for the, into the deep black, and the only thing stopping you and dying is that glass. So... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it, sets uh, the mood. <laughs> it does sets the mood now, which is my leads me on to my first question. One of the things it opens up with is that you have a history. The character you're playing has a history. They haven't always been a bin man or a no. trash man, if you like. Mm-hmm. Far from it. They were, and they're very accomplished astrophysicists and stuff. They were, they really knew all the sorts of they 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 were going places or more. They were, they had been places. Something terrible happened. I'd say what. And now they're they're working on the garbage scale, picking <laughs> up junk for people uh, after disasters have occurred. And you're employed on contract. And I just love the idea that rather than the player being the centre of the universe, mm-hmm. they're just a part of it. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, how has that influenced the design, the other seemingly unrelated aspects of Space Salvage? How has that created a cascade of... Well, no, they wouldn't know do that, or they wouldn't be able to do that because they're not playing Diablo Four. <laughs> they're not the centre of the hero. world. Yeah. yeah, they're not. They're just yeah. trying to get by. So, how has that influenced other aspects of the design of space salvage? I think it affected the pace a lot. I think a lot of work we did was on pacing and the the speed of the game. I think if once you set that kind of precedent that they are a cog in the machine, it gives you like a certain like energy you want to put in the levels the sort of like how how you build combat how you build engagements and how you build threat is all is much is vastly different to those games where you are the big guy who's going to go and save the, the world and fight the dragon slower smaller and closer it's my experience of that feeling i wanted to get so Oh yeah, so, I mean, from a story point of view it's definitely like i personally i'm not a fan of the you like you are the key to everything only you can solve can save the universe etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. like it's it's a bit it's a bit old hat for me and i find the stories much more compelling when especially when it comes to virtual reality where immersion is like a really important weapon in our arsenal as developers like mm-hmm. if telling you that you have this 
you're part of this grand prophecy and you're supposed to feel <laughs> like everyone around you is you know beholden to your whims and stuff is being a bit more difficult to get across than you're just like average joe guy in situation you know make the best of it which i always feel like is a much more compelling and more immersive tale so it kind of helped in that regard but in terms of design like yeah story point of view the player is often like without doing a lot of story story spoilers the player is often being used as a tool by other Mm. like more accomplished parties versus like being kind of lauded for their position in a prophecy or their role as king of the whatever and that i think makes your choices and how it feels to be like a guy in like a space bin truck a lot more (laughs) kind of visceral and real rather than the alternative it's relatable for a start you are not the chosen one um you know it's there's there's none of that and like the opposite of the chosen one (laughs) there is a there is a wonderful VR game, which is based in the Warhammer fantasy university, mm. Age of Sigmar. But that's all ridiculous. You're supposed to, that's the premise of the game, yeah. the premise yeah. of the environment. It's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the point. And that's similarly, yeah. yeah, and similarly, you know, the Warhammer 40,000 uh, bolt gun game. That's ridiculous. But yeah. it's just the point, you know, you yeah. buy into it. Whereas this, with, with Space Salvage, it's very much. Garbage scale carrier trying to avoid meteors smashing into your face. Have fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've got to work 400 years to work off your debt. Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah, the kind of reluctant hero vibe. I mean, um, I don't know how obvious it is, but Hitchhiker's Guide was like a big touchstone for us tonally. So, like, the Arthur Dent of like just a guy who lives in his house and then gets kind of sucked up into a into a world of like intergalactic conflict that he doesn't really have any place being part of is kind of uh yeah kind of what we were aiming for i guess indeed there are times when i find it difficult not to lie in front of a digger anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> i will protest this <laughs> i'm going to talk about something very mechanical now but i need to address this because if space savage was made 20 years ago it wouldn't be a vr game it would have been a third person third point view of you maneuvering the vessel from outside. I get the impression that it's still there, not a negative point. still get the impression that there are aspects of this game where positioning and where you are relative to everything else is absolutely critical in understanding and how to play and how to experience space salvage. But what I find remarkable is how you communicate that to the player. You've got the radar, which I'm very familiar with from playing decades now, because I'm very old, of elite, so like, oh yeah, I got that. I know, I recognise that. Yeah. But it's really remarkable how you didn't falter at that. You never let go. From what I see, you seem to be anchored around a concept like the player needs to know where they are relative to everything else all of the time. How did you manage to keep hold of that? Because you could have let go at some point. It might have gone a bit awry. How have you found maintaining that sense of space and location? Yeah. It's kind of hard to answer in a lot of ways. Let me just try to figure out how to put that into words. Some part of it is like, in a in a way, like the restraint of the platform. Because we didn't get big levels and big amounts of space to play with, we had a lot of time to look at the small spaces we had and go over them and over them and over them. And like, there is like an, I guess I say advantage of having like a smaller amount of content in each slice. Um, 
and the the way that we wanted the feeling of threat to happen like outside the pod we had this concept of inside the pods these feelings are omitted and these feelings are outside made it kind of easy for us to tell if we were going away from that like outside is dangerous and there is value there inside is these is your only actionable like place where you have power if we found that you could go outside and then you were manipulating anything things outside in any way where you felt like you had power over the thing we knew we were going wrong and that resulted like um there's a there's a tool you get later on in the game as you manipulate some things out so the pod is it's a bit unwieldy it's a bit it's a bit cumbersome and that's intentional because we didn't want you to be able to fully manipulate space around you and feel like you had power outside of this pod and then the rest was just our very talented level designers who worked very very hard <laughs> constantly <laughs> um, yeah Six okay. degrees of translational freedom yeah. does not does not make for easy level design. No, no. <laughs> we found that quite quick. I just I just really found it amusing how when there was a very early level one, everyone there's a level where you're an area I should say not level an area where you're in it's being randomly smashed and shot at from not not uh, enemies but from meteorites just all you know smashing into this space. And the amount of times I found myself going, well, if I just nip across there, I might just make it. <laughs> And you yeah. go across, and you get shielded by these rocks and yeah. old pieces of space debris, and it, it just felt like a platformer sometimes. Like, oh, it's a break. I'm, <laughs> I can yeah. I can I'm go sorry. there, grab that, and then come back again. Yeah, and that's, only, that's the only way I survived that one. It's horrendous, uh, in a good way. Uh, it was very stressful. But again, in a good way. Um, <laughs> Intentionally, sir. <so. laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the way they the, the the way the game sets it up and this is a space savage really sort of leans into the uh, satire heavily like oh I'll be fine it's just you know what's the worst can happen oh yeah <laughs> but anyway it's just fine so yeah it's it's really really clever and just like I marvelled at how you you achieve that because like I said it could have gone horrifically wrong uh, but no so my next question is about. The interface and the controls. Yes. Because it would be really wrong of me not to address this. And I find it remarkable how VR games are able to do this because they can now do this where you can actually, rather than you grabbing a control stick and then moving your thumbstick and then that represents, and then you see someone's floating hand in front of you that you're yeah. controlling remotely. No, that's not the case. That's actually your hand now. And what I find incredible is that what you've done here, you've compartmentalized all the components of control. And it means that you can only use two of them at any one time because you've only got two hands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I find this this whole design quite counterintuitive because mostly you'll have the devices, the throttle and the, you know, I've used... um, these the combo throttle thing systems yeah. that have about 400 buttons on them that can yeah, do okay. all of the things without even pulling your hand away ever. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a conceit in the space salvage, if I may, that says, oh yeah. no, when you buy new modules, you, they just bolt on a new control on the side rather than, <laughs> yeah. rather than modifying the one you already have. Yeah. I'm like, well, this seems safe, but hey, it's just, you know. <laughs> well, on but, is definitely the word we were kind of feeling, wanting to feel for. Yeah, let's just weld this on and hope it works. <laughs> yeah, so I just have to ask, how did that evolve? Was it, it sounds like it was like a, in keeping with the story again, or was mm-hmm. it something keeping with the universe itself? Because 
I mean, this is a this bad design, not in case of the game. Please don't yeah, think that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, bad design yeah. in terms of the pod. Like, yeah. I mean, I've got to take my hand off to fire a gun from the throttle. <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, and why yeah. have I got to take my hand off to move, manipulate the claw? And just why? You know, and it wasn't. I wasn't yelling at the gun, the game. Yeah, Please yeah, don't. Yeah. It was just me going. These people are awful. You know, <laughs> mean to me. Why are they doing this? Yeah. So, could I, you I talk think... us through how that evolved over time and how you? What worked and what didn't work? I think mechanically, like the, the kind of genesis of it all was the our CEO was his sort of baby. The kind of plan to have this craft that you manipulate through a handful of different ways. I think the the intention was for it to be cumbersome and difficult mm-hmm. uh, to make it challenging. I think it also like in so many games, your movement is a given. And then the behavior that you exert whilst you're moving is really where a lot of the like specific skill curve lies. Whereas we kind of really lent into like the fundamental movement, which I think also kind of goes back to the thing you uh, you asked previously about like the how do you always know where you are in space so well? I think because we kind of eliminated a lot of things like drift and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you have a very solid sense you are very much in control of your movement all the time and that's always like the primary focus and then shooting your laser or moving the gravity lance is like another thing on top of that so they become like they become cumbersome and and problematic one of our community members actually said that when they started playing it they were treating it like a flight simulator and they kind of were bumping up against this problem a fair amount and then he said that well if you think about it like a forklift truck yeah, and you're moving crates around an Amazon warehouse. It starts to kind of make a lot more sense, um, yeah. and it makes sense why it feels like cumbersome and difficult. I think it does dovetail well into the setting and the story of yeah, like yeah. you you are in a horrible like dystopian uh, world, and yeah, they probably wouldn't fit you with the most efficient or easy to use piece of machinery. Yeah. If anyone's ever worked a warehouse job, that's yeah. pretty accurate <laughs> how that feels. So yeah, I think it kind of it kind of comes across everything but it was it was initially from this like very simple i mean we literally had like a a, a mesh donut with some mm. controls on it and i mean that was the yeah that yeah. once we realized that was fun to do we just started adding more controls and then the whole thing kind of yeah. evolved from there it really was it was adding and adding and like oh let's put some buttons here there's a keyboard here let's just see what happens <laughs> we did try originally like a more lean like before Stefan started me and paul were experimenting with like putting controls together and what it felt like and what it'd be like to make gameplay for that but like that dev like a gameplay that was would need like much larger scenes. It would need much larger larger amount of assets and all this other stuff that just wasn't. It was like an extra amount of work when not having it was also fun and interesting to play with and like a unique thing we could play with in terms of design. So we did we did try the other way around first, and we we're just like the people have done this. Yeah, let's let's have some fun with the other way around. <laughs> Yeah, I think it reminded me in some ways of a game called The Last Worker, which is a game we featured previously on on this show. And it's a, the, the the warehouse worker. Yeah, it reeks of that. Of like, mm-hmm. why why do you need combination? Com- I mean, what you're not you're not doing dexterous swinging around, and why yeah. you're just you're stopping because of course yeah. you would, <laughs> and then you're moving the thing, mm-hmm. and you carry on. Why do you keep? Why do you need to be maneuverable while doing these things? That makes no sense. Yeah. Like, yeah, but I'm being shot at. Why are you being shot at? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not part of the contract. Shot at? You don't get danger money for this. 
no life no you know it's just uh, it's just yeah so it's uh, it really again it sort of goes back to my first question really is that yeah. how this concept of you being this person doing the thing bled right through the game even to the point where it now impacts on the interface itself so you know when people say stories cannot be told in video games really <laughs> i would i would yeah. point to space salvage and go like, au contraire you know, <laughs> I think I, I was actually kind of on that point. I was a bit worried if we would sell that because it, it took a lot of it was it was an op- a version of Space Salvage where people just did yell at the controls and thought we'd done a bad job. Like we hadn't managed to sell it narratively. Like we hadn't understood. No, this isn't a bug. This isn't like a bad feature. It was this is part of the way we want you to play. But people have been really responding well to it. Like like people have said so much of like. I get in here, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, why is it controlled by this? Oh, so what's going on? And then it, immediately after, I was like, I love it. Like, this is, I, it's really nice to see the people journey as they talk to us about putting the game and persuading those worries. Last question is this. I want to talk about how it's presented to the player. We haven't really spoken about it that much because I'm going to say it's relatively low polygon count. Not terribly low, but it's lower than most. Yeah. But it does mean it goes along at quite a pace. It clips along, and also the lighting is such that not a lot is hidden, really. You can see what's going on. You haven't got all to the point where there's there's light sources where they ought not be, but they're there anyway just to help the player out. It's not, you know, the lights don't go out in the cabin or anything like that. Could you talk us through how that evolved and why you adopted that kind of style? You could have gone all sorts of places. You could have even gone, like, cartoony cel-shaded. You could have done... You know, ultra realistic and the Star Wars you like in terms of how they present their VR games. If you notice, they have a certain style to them, a lot of like smooth curves and a very high polygon town. But for yourselves, why did you go this way? And can you talk us through how that went from A to Z? Well, we're a we're a small team, Chris, <laughs> and the quest has a wealth of technical limitations that we kind of needed to overcome in our own way that would make sense. It, we did actually initially the game began with a much more realistic uh, aesthetic, um, but we kind of binned it for something more stylized, basically because I think it kind of fits the satirical world better arguably um in terms of like it has an almost like graphic novel kind of feel to it um so it keeps you kind of separated it would you know you don't want to like make it super believable in a sense mm-hmm. um it was a bit of a strange way to put it but it was it was largely to do with the technical limitations of the quest to be yeah to be completely honest we didn't really as much as i'm a fan of the final aesthetic we kind of needed to come up with something that would work consistently fairly quickly and we sort of settled on this low poly there's only base color maps we don't use any reflectivity any of this because it caused a bunch of problems lighting was also massively limited because of the quest hardware and all these kind of things so we is also something that if we'd gone for making it look more realistic then the lack of realistic lighting would have been way more palpable mm-hmm. so by saying it by taking a whole bunch of that stuff out we could keep it more consistent without having to like do a bunch of trickery or include a bunch of technical overhead that we just didn't have the room for essentially and it was things like wanting to be able to i'm sure hopefully you've read some of the posters in the game world and things like that 
they like advertisements and stuff were very important to the kind of core identity of the game and reinforcing this like dystopian world that you're part of and and putting like big billboard posters that contain a lot of information in like a very cell shaded like shader driven aesthetic they that stuff can look really out of place so we kind of wanted to get a kind of nice middle ground where it was performative but we could still get things like this in or like have things written on the arm of the odd chair in like pen and you know things like this these these little details that we can squeak into textures that we wouldn't have been able to do if it was all like cell shaded or shaded driven etc that's kind of how we ended up there space salvage has been developed by footy systems where does the name name come from have to ask our boss. No idea. I don't, I don't know where he. I think maybe he told us a long time ago. But he just I liked forgot, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot his justification. Oh, for fruity. We okay. might have to create some more interesting mythos. Yeah, I do like asking that question because you get some very interesting names of developers. Some of it is that three AM. I need a domain, or oh, I've like. Yeah, Yellow fruit bat. We'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, and what platforms is Space Salvage available on? It's on Quest, the Quest platform, and Steam currently. Stefan and Corin, it's been really great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having us. Great time. Well, that was fun. Love chatting to Stefan and Corin about creation of Space Salvage. I hope that shone through during the episode. Next week, episode 483. It features Sands of Aura, which is a hack-and-slash adventure game that looks like Diablo, but plays more like Dark Souls. It's caused a lot of confusion, a lot of players, if you look at the reviews and stuff. But it is a fantastic game, a beautiful game. I'll be chatting to Mike Shistik of Chashu Entertainment and ask them about how they managed to merge these two very different genres together. Until then, you can listen to my preview call itself. Bye! You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com. Rinse.com.